identifies two types of compassion. Type 1 is tinged with attachment, but crumbles when your special friend changes because it's not solid. Type 2 is genuine compassion based on the fact that the other person is dear to me and has the basic human right to seek happiness. There's a very interesting interview with John Lennon and Yoko Ono, and if I find it, I'll put it in the show notes. And John Lennon freely admits, and he says, uh, you know, I'm in love with Yoko, but I also want to possess her. And he recognised that there was a possession side of relationships. And I don't think personally that if you recognise that possession side, that the relationship is doomed necessarily. I don't think so. I mean, this book is saying that we can change, you know, that relationships can evolve, you know, almost moment by moment, really. Same as your life can evolve like that. So on compassion, the Dalai Lama says, in fact, in one sense, one can define compassion as the feeling of unbearableness at the sight of other people's suffering, other sentient beings suffering. And in order to generate that feeling, one must have an appreciation of the seriousness or intensity of another's suffering. So I think that the more fully one understands suffering and the various kinds of suffering that we are subject to, the deeper will be one's level of compassion. And then Cutler raises the question, well, I appreciate the fact that greater awareness of others' suffering can enhance our capacity for compassion. In fact, by definition, compassion involves opening oneself to another's suffering, sharing another's suffering. But there's a more basic question, why would we want to take on another's suffering when we don't even want our own? Most of us go to great lengths to avoid our own pain and suffering, even to the point of taking drugs and so on. Why would we then deliberately take on someone else's? Without hesitation, the Dalai Lama responded, I feel that there is a significant difference between your own suffering and the suffering you might experience in a compassionate state in which you take upon yourself and share other people's suffering. A qualitative difference. He paused and then, as if effortlessly targeting my own feelings at the moment, he continued, When you think about your own suffering, there is a feeling of being totally overwhelmed. There is a sense of being burdened, of being pressed under something, a feeling of helplessness. There's a dullness, almost as if your faculties have become numb. Now in generating compassion, when you are taking on another's suffering, you may also initially experience a certain degree of discomfort or unbearableness. But in the case of compassion, the feeling is so much different. Underlying the uncomfortable feeling is a very high level of alertness and determination because you are voluntarily and deliberately accepting another's suffering for a higher purpose. There is a feeling of connectedness and commitment, a willingness to reach out to others, a feeling of freshness rather than dullness. A bit later on in this section, they talk about power and status and the relationship when weighed against happiness and compassion. And they bring up the example of Joseph Stalin, who was, of course, a man of great power in the Soviet empire, but also responsible for the deaths of many, many millions of people. So Cutler says, in bringing up Stalin, I observed, I think you've hit on a perfect example of what you're saying, of the consequences of living without compassion. It's well known that the two main features that characterise his personality were his ruthlessness and his suspiciousness. He viewed ruthlessness as a virtue, in fact, and changed his name to Stalin, meaning man of steel. And as his life progressed, the more ruthless he became, the more suspicious he became. His suspiciousness was legendary. His fearfulness and suspiciousness of others eventually led to massive purges and campaigns against various groups of people in his country, resulting in the imprisonment and execution of millions. But he still continued to see enemies everywhere. Not long before his death, he told Khrushchev, I trust no one, not even myself. In the end, he even turned on his most faithful staff, and clearly the more ruthless and powerful he became, the more unhappy he was. One friend said that finally the only human trait he had left was his unhappiness. His daughter Svetlana described how he was plagued by loneliness and an emptiness inside and got to the point that he no longer believed that people were capable of being genuinely sincere or warm-hearted. So essentially he gave in to paranoia and you'll find that with a lot of powerful people and that's been portrayed well in films and books and plays and all sorts. And uh, eventually they turn on everyone. And he's almost turning on himself because he says, I trust no one, not even myself. So the final line of defence against the paranoia, which is believing in yourself as the person that apparently knows you best, even that crumbles as well. And on the subject of powerful people, I wanted to just quickly say something about um, figures like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. I mean, I don't know much about Jeff Bezos's personal life, but Elon Musk's personal life has been pretty messy. So there's no, really no reason to envy them and... I personally think that having, I don't know, however many private jets you've got parked in your drive is almost pathological. You know, our society in its limited way would probably call you lefty or left-wing or whatever, 
or jealous even, you know, maybe. <laughs> Why haven't I got a load of private jets? But um, this is very, very important in life. You know, again, we're told it's human nature to compare yourself to others and to feel envy when others have more than you. But you can control it. You know, it's not beyond your control. And one of the ways of thinking about it is think, if Bill Gates is so happy, why does he work so much? Some will say, you know, he's doing it for the world. I, again, I don't personally believe that. And this is all coming up now, of course, if you're listening to this in 2022 with um, the vaccine issue, which has become uh, a big uh, global conversation, which is probably about split somewhere down the middle. Though you wouldn't believe that if you watched uh, the BBC, for example. They will tell you there's not even any question. Anyway, that's uh, beside the point slightly. But um, yeah, these people, if they're so happy, why do they work 12, 16 hours a day? I don't think it's just for the love of the world or for the love of money. Maybe because they don't trust others to do the job for them, you know. So um, basically, don't envy other people. There you go, some homespun wisdom. My grandma probably told me that. We're about halfway through the book now, and this is the benefits of compassion. And I want to just share a little story. When I lived in Thailand, I was obviously a professional teacher. I also earned some money as a musician as well. But uh, I decided to volunteer in a slum, and I used to do that on a Sunday morning for about three hours. I don't want to make myself out to be any kind of hero, I'm not at all. But all I really wanted to say was that, as well as giving to the students, which I used to do anyway when I was earning money, I got a great deal from it, and I, it was a place quite near to where I lived, so I literally could walk home, and I would have a, literally a spring in my step, you know. And it was just wonderful to see um, the look of happiness in their eyes when they were learning stuff. And um, like I said, I was gaining a lot, so giving to others, you, you get a lot for yourself, you know, the... One of the things that we were talking about earlier is about the selfish. Every act has some selfishness to it. And if you take selfish to not mean so pejorative, you take it literally relating to the self or, you know, for the benefit of the self, then giving to other people, you do get a benefit for it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm getting a lot out of this while I'm giving to other people because everyone, everyone's a winner, you know, everyone benefits. So this is a little... Um, a meditation, uh, this would have been in a in a big hall with thousands of people and the Dalai Lama in his very calm, measured tones, talking uh, through it, but you, you get me instead. So, let us meditate on compassion today. Begin by visualizing a person who is acutely suffering, someone who is in pain or is in a very unfortunate situation. For the first three minutes of the meditation, reflect on that individual's suffering in a more analytic way. Think about their intense suffering and the unfortunate state of that person's existence. After thinking about that person's suffering for a few minutes, next, try to relate that to yourself, thinking, that individual has the same capacity for experiencing pain, joy, happiness and suffering that I do. Then, try to allow your natural response to arise, a natural feeling of compassion towards that person. Try to arrive at a conclusion, thinking how strongly you wish for that person to be free from that suffering and resolve that you will help that person to be relieved from their suffering. Finally, place your mind single-pointedly on that kind of conclusion or resolution, and for the last few minutes of the meditation, try to simply generate your mind in a compassionate or loving state. And uh, I would add to that, if you find that difficult with people, if you're maybe a person that finds it difficult to warm to people, then there is a meditation um, that I've done a few times, which is to do with... Um, spreading positive feelings towards people and they bring up the example of a pet now you know anyone who's got a dog or a cat unless they happen to be particularly aggressive due to maybe some things that have been done to them in the past i'd say the majority of dogs and cats are just lovely and when they're when they are your pet you know you love them unconditionally just think about that kind of love and think about you know your pet cat or your pet dog being in severe pain you know obviously <laughs> you probably don't want to think about that for long but uh or just think generically, an animal, a cat or a dog, you know, loving dog who gives you nothing but warmth or a lovely, elusive feline who you love for its mystery and then you appreciate the occasional times when it's affectionate to you. Because cats are different, you know, they are affectionate in their own way, but you don't get the same, as Robert De Niro said in Meet the Parents, you know, cats make you work for their affection, dogs just roll over easily. <laughs> but um, yeah, try it with an animal, then maybe try it with a human what he's saying in that is that if you reflect on it you will find that your natural compassion will come to you if you're not trying to to will it or to overthink it then um, that wonderful thing that most humans have if they haven't been too damaged or misguided you know that will come naturally it's a wonderful thing about meditation you open the space for the magic to happen and on that note i'll move on to the next section okay we're now into part three of the book and this is called 
facing suffering. Although pain and suffering are universal human phenomena, that doesn't mean we have an easy time accepting them. Human beings have devised a vast repertoire of strategies for avoiding having to experience suffering. Sometimes we use external means, such as chemicals, deadening and medicating our emotional pain with drugs or alcohol. We have an array of internal mechanisms as well, psychological defences, often unconscious, that buffer us from feeling too much emotional pain and anguish when we are confronted with problems. Sometimes these defence mechanisms can be quite primitive, such as simply refusing to recognise that a problem exists. At other times we may vaguely recognise that we have a problem, but immerse ourselves in a million distractions or entertainments to avoid thinking about it. Or we might use projection. Unable to accept that we have a problem, we unconsciously project it onto others and blame them for our suffering. Yeah, I'm miserable, but it's not me that has the problem. It's someone else who has the problem. If it wasn't for that damn boss constantly giving me a hard time, my partner ignoring me, etc, etc, I'd be fine. I don't really need to add more to that really, except to say that um, it might be worth listening back to that again, that paragraph, and think about how we do this politically as well. You know, I mean, there are uncomfortable truths that get written off as conspiracy theories or outlandish uh, worldviews. But then if you wait long enough, often they get accepted and people forget that they consider them outlandish. So the next time something comes along that challenges the official line, that can be written off. It's quite an amusing... Uh, I'd say that ironically it's not really amusing at all and just in your own life think about you know how much of your life is to do with defense mechanisms and coping strategies Vivian Yanoff who was um whose husband Arthur devised primal therapy sometimes known as the primal scream therapy she talked about you know our defense being our newspaper our morning coffee it could be anything and you know it's not negative to recognize that I think it's very good because I now allow you to make breakthroughs and this is the Dalai Lama talking. In our daily lives, problems are bound to arise. The biggest problems in our lives are the ones that we inevitably have to face, like old age, illness and death. Trying to avoid our problems or simply not thinking about them may provide temporary relief, but I think that there is a better approach. If you directly confront your suffering, you will be in a better position to appreciate the depth and nature of the problem. If you are in a battle, as long as you remain ignorant of the status and combat capability of your enemy, you will be totally unprepared and paralysed by fear. However, if you know the fighting capability of your opponent, what sort of weapons they have and so on, then you're in a much better position when you engage in the war. In the same way, if you confront your problems rather than avoid them, you will be in a better position to deal with them. And this is Dalai Lama again. By reflecting on the types of suffering that we're subject to, we can mentally prepare for these things ahead of time to some degree by reminding yourself about the fact that you may come across these kinds of dilemmatic situations i.e. dilemmas in your life so you can prepare yourself mentally but you should not forget the fact that this does not alleviate the situation it may help one mentally cope with it reduce the fear and so on but it does not alleviate the problem itself for instance if a child with a birth defect is going to be born no matter how strongly you thought about it ahead of time you still have to find a way to handle it so this is still difficult however of course if you know ahead of time you will be able to devise strategies and here I'm really using coping strategies in the positive sense. When you are confronted with real problems, you have to cope with them. But what I was kind of arguing in the, the last part I read before this one was um, sometimes we use coping strategies to avoid the truth, which is a, a whole different thing. This is the Dalai Lama again continuing. So anyway, I think that how you perceive life as a whole plays a role in your attitude about suffering. For instance, if your basic outlook is that suffering is negative and must be avoided at all costs, and in some sense is a sign of failure, this will add a distinct psychological component of anxiety and intolerance when you encounter difficult circumstances, a feeling of being overwhelmed. On the other hand, if your basic outlook accepts that suffering is a natural part of your existence, this will undoubtedly make you more tolerant towards the adversities of life, and without a certain degree of tolerance towards your suffering, your life becomes miserable. It's like having a very bad night. That night seems eternal. It never seems to end. So as I'm reading that, I'm thinking of children who get very much sheltered by their parents, you know, and are kept apart from suffering. When it comes, they're not able to cope with it. So uh, perhaps the luckiest upbringing, therefore, is one that has some suffering. But then if you grow up in a really rough area or with, as I said earlier, drug-addicted parents, you know, that kind of suffering, you might reach a point of no return, unfortunately. I think the point he's saying is that... Um, most of us will encounter suffering of some kind and perhaps you can embrace it instead of um, trying to deny it or force it away from you. 
embrace it instead and you will be able to cope better. Okay, now we move on to self-created suffering. At the end of this section we have Howard Cutler. As Western society gained the ability to limit the suffering caused by harsh living conditions, it seems to have lost the ability to cope with the suffering that remains. Studies by social scientists have emphasised that most people in modern Western society tend to go through life believing that the world is basically a nice place in which to live, that life is mostly fair and that they are good people who deserve to have good things happen to them. These beliefs can play an important role in leading a happier and healthier life, but the inevitable arising of suffering undermines these beliefs and can make it difficult to go on living happily and effectively. In this context, a relatively minor trauma can have a massive psychological impact as one loses faith in one's basic beliefs about the world as fair and benevolent. As a result, suffering is intensified. And this came up in the uh, conspiracy theories discussion I had with Ricky Green a few episodes back. I think it was the academic paper that Karen Douglas wrote or was involved with, or co-wrote, and she was saying, oh, conspiracy theorists think that the world is an unjust place. And I was like, well, hello, you know. 50 people, the richest 50 people in the world, have got the same as the poorest half of the world, which is three and a half, getting on for four billion, actually, because we're hurtling towards a total world population of eight billion, it seems. So, um, again, you have to understand that this is the world. It's terribly unfair. But, of course, there are great things in it, you know, and I believe in the general goodness of most people. You know, yes, there are sociopaths in our society, and quite often they're successful because... They don't have that empathy, you know, they, their conscience can remain clear when they're doing awful things. But I believe in the goodness of most people. But if you think the world is just, then I'm afraid you're kidding yourself. Now let's move on to self-created suffering. And this is Cutler. But we also add to our own suffering in other ways. All too often we perpetuate our pain, keep it alive, by replaying our hurts over and over again in our minds, magnifying our injustices in the process. We repeat our painful memories with the unconscious perhaps wish that somehow it will change the situation, but it never does. Of course, sometimes this endless recounting of our woes can serve a limited purpose. It can add drama and a certain excitement to our lives or elicit attention and sympathy from others. But this seems like a poor trade-off for the unhappiness we continue to endure. So yes, I'd agree with that. Reflection on your past is sometimes a good thing, I think, or sometimes a pleasurable thing. You know, it can be nostalgic about it but then dwelling about the past particularly if it's you know if it's just happened to you these slights being oversensitive it doesn't really help you know I, I often think about it in terms of things like panicking and worrying they do create adrenaline perhaps and that may help you in a given situation but you have to think do they serve a purpose and if they don't then you really need to try and eradicate them you know obviously when bad things happen you when a trauma happens you have a grieving process but even within that, it can be done in a constructive way, let's say. If someone close to you dies, you can celebrate their life. You know, So you're looking back then, but you're looking back in a way that will actually be of some benefit. Let's continue. There's an anecdote in the book about uh, a customer in a restaurant who gets very bad service, and they dwell on it and take it personally. That's another thing, uh, taking things personally. Because what happens in this anecdote is that, in fact... Um, at the end of the meal, the waiter presented us with two free desserts, explaining, I apologise for the slow service this evening, but we're a little understaffed. One of the cooks had a death in the family, and he's off tonight, and one of the servers called in sick at the last minute. I hope it didn't inconvenience you. So this kind of ties in with the story of Rolf, you know, the guy who seemed very cold, but then it turned out he'd had a lot of suffering in his life. So again, we, we don't know if you have bad service in a hotel or a restaurant, you don't know the full story unless you try and find out. So taking it personally and thinking that it's something about you that's causing it to happen is almost always not accurate. Howard Cutler asked the Dalai Lama about this. How can we deal with the feeling of unfairness that so often seems to torture us when problems arise? The Dalai Lama replied, There may be a variety of ways that one might deal with the feeling that one's suffering is unfair. I've already spoken of the importance of accepting suffering as a natural fact of human existence. And I think that in some ways Tibetans might be in a better position to accept the reality of these difficult situations because they will say, maybe it's because of my karma in the past. They will attribute it to negative actions committed in either this or a previous life. And so there is a greater degree of acceptance. I've seen some families in our settlements in India with very difficult situations, living under very poor conditions, and on top of that having children with both eyes blind or sometimes retarded 
and somehow these poor ladies still manage to look after them, simply saying this is due to their karma, it is their fate. Now I did uh, read or hear on a podcast, I can't remember what it was, that in fact the idea, the Eastern idea of karma and the Western idea are quite different in that what the Dalai Lama is talking about there is karma as being something inevitable, that it may come from a past life. So if you are born with a deformity or you have um, intense suffering in your life, it may be because of crimes that happened in the past. So that may give you a certain detachment, whereas the Western karma is more, you know, what goes around comes around. It's the idea that you do good actions and it benefits you somehow, I think, within the same life. And I think, to be honest, there's myriad examples of people who live very good lives and then come to very painful ends. So I don't think we can totally rely on natural justice in terms of our actions. One of the things about the book is that obviously the Dalai Lama is a great proponent of Buddhism, and some people don't class it as a religion. They would say it's more a, a way of life, let's say. But I think he does. And um, Cutler at various times challenges him and says, well, what can a person who is a non-believer do? And his a suggestion, and this is to do with this uh, unfairness idea and also the idea of karma. For a non-believer, the Dalai Lama pondered for several moments before responding, perhaps a practical scientific approach could help. I think that scientists usually consider it very important to look at a problem objectively, to study it without much emotional involvement. With this kind of approach, you can look at the problem with the attitude of, if there's a way to fight the problem, then fight, even if you have to go to court, he laughed. Then, if you find that there's no way to win, you can simply forget about it. An objective analysis of difficult or problematic situations can be quite important because with this approach, you'll often discover that behind the scenes there may be other factors at play. For instance, if you feel that you're being treated unfairly by your boss at work, he may be annoyed by something else, an argument with his wife that morning or something, or his behaviour may have nothing to do with you personally, may not be specifically directed at you. Okay, this is the Dalai Lama talking about um, apportioning blame. Often our normal tendency is to try to blame our problems on others, on external factors. Furthermore, we tend to look for one single cause and then try to exonerate ourselves from the responsibility. It seems that whenever there are intense emotions involved, there tends to be a disparity between how things appear and how they really are. Once you realise this, your earlier attitude that that is the only cause automatically falls away and the reality of the situation emerges. So yes, I, I'm very guilty of this myself, looking at your problems and, and saying it's that or it's this. As we said earlier, we normally look to external things. But, uh, you know, one thing leads to another. It's just snowball effect and he was saying you know that intense emotions they create a kind of a fog some people call it the red mist when you're very angry you just can't see clearly so i think what he's really saying is you know stop and take a scientific approach you know if you don't believe in karma fate if you're not a religious believer then uh, that's another approach a, a very rational approach now we move on to guilt ah our old friend guilt I've started to think more and more recently, particularly in meditations, that uh, most people are infused with guilt. And I've actually asked people about this. I have a group here in the town where I live, a discussion group, and I asked them, do you feel guilty a lot? And they all said yes, <laughs> categorically. Sometimes I wonder if the ability to live without indulging in self-destructive guilt is partly cultural. This is Cutler talking, by the way. In recounting my conversation with the Dalai Lama about regret to a friend who is a Tibetan scholar, I was told that, in fact, the Tibetan language doesn't even have an equivalent for the English word guilt, although it does have words meaning remorse or repentance or regret, with a sense of rectifying things in the future. Whatever the cultural component may be, however, I believe that by challenging our customary ways of thinking and cultivating a different mental outlook based on the principles described by the Dalai Lama, any of us can learn to live without the brand of guilt that does nothing but cause ourselves needless suffering. So that's what I was saying a moment ago, these emotions, you have to think, is there any practical benefit to it? And if there isn't, then you really need to take steps to eradicate it. In the West, again, I'm generalising in the developed world, let's say, where our standard of living is clearly higher. You know, there's automatic Western guilt there. Among the middle classes in England, there's a joke about, you know, the middle classes are always reading because they feel guilty if they're not educating themselves. And, uh, you know, probably, again, I'm guilty of that. And it's absolutely absurd, but... Again, talking about having practical reasons, you know, I read a lot because I do get a lot from it and I read a lot of books like the one I'm reading to you now. So 
there is a practical benefit. But um, I think, you know, if you do something uh, truly awful to someone, then obviously guilt is a good thing because it's probably going to make you go back and um, ask for forgiveness from that person or forgive yourself as well. But it's this useless guilt, which seems to be part of the human conditioning. Again, is it human nature? Is it conditioning? You decide. So now we move on to the idea of impermanence. So this is something that Dalai Lama talks about a lot. You know, often in life we're trying to create permanence. We might believe that our relationship, we are, as we said earlier about relationships, that we found the love of our life and that that's going to be permanent. And hopefully it will be, you know, but a relationship, any relationship, be it platonic or romantic or familial as well, it works because it evolves. So you recognize that it's not permanent in the state that it's in at any time. Everything is moving. You know, the world is fluid. So while the contemplation of impermanence has tremendous significance within a Buddhist context, the question arises, does the contemplation and understanding of impermanence have any practical application in the everyday lives of non-Buddhists as well? If we view the concept of impermanence from the standpoint of change, then the answer is a definite yes. After all, whether one looks at life from a Buddhist perspective or a Western perspective, the fact remains that life is change. And to the degree that we refuse to accept this fact and resist the natural life changes, we will continue to perpetuate our own suffering. And a few pages on. As our lives play out, we develop from infancy to childhood to adulthood to old age. We accept these changes in individual development as a natural progression, but a relationship is also a dynamic living system composed of two organisms interacting in a living environment. And as a living system, it is equally natural and right that the relationship should go through stages. In any relationship, there are different dimensions of closeness, physical, emotional and intellectual. Bodily contact, sharing emotions, thoughts and exchanging ideas are all legitimate ways of connecting with those we love. It is normal for the balance to wax and wane. Sometimes physical closeness decreases, but emotional closeness can increase. At other times we don't feel like sharing words, but we just want to be held. If we are sensitive to this issue, we can rejoice in the initial bloom of passion in a relationship, but if it cools, instead of feeling worry or anger, we can open ourselves to new forms of intimacy that can be equally or perhaps more satisfying. We can delight in our partner as a companion, enjoy a steadier love, a deeper bond. So this is really what we were talking about earlier with relationships. I wanted to talk also about platonic friendships. It says that it's normal for the balance to wax and wane. I think also there's a push and pull element to friendships. And I often find that a friendship is difficult to sustain when one person is the person who is always pushing or initiating, let's say. Think about that. Do you have friendships where you're the one that always initiates and if you didn't, then the friendship wouldn't continue? Or maybe it's the other way around. The friend initiates all the time and perhaps you should as well. So I think... This question of balance is very important. In conclusion, you know, relationships are fluid and they require a constant balancing. Okay, a bit further on. As we come to understand this, we will no longer react with horror or panic when we first notice ourselves growing apart from our partner any more than we would panic while watching the tide go out at the seashore. Of course, sometimes a growing emotional distance can signal serious problems in a relationship, an unspoken undercurrent of anger, for instance, and even breakups can occur. In those cases, measures such as therapy can be very helpful, but the main point to keep in mind is that a growing distance doesn't automatically spell disaster. It can also be part of a cycle that returns to redefine the relationship in a new form that can recapture or even surpass the intimacy that existed in the past. So there you go, a nice uh, comparison of a relationship with a tide. You could perhaps compare it to a, a sea current as well, because the sea current never stays the same. It's constantly moving and shifting. Okay, the next chapter is called Shifting Perspective, and now we're going on to talk about anger. Let's say that someone makes you angry. Your natural response to being hurt, your immediate response, is to get angry. In a lot of cases, it is not just a matter of getting angry at the time you're being hurt. You might think about the event later, even much later, and every time you think about it, you become angry all over again. This is Cutler asking the Dalai Lama, how would you suggest dealing with that kind of situation? The Dalai Lama nodded thoughtfully and looked at me. I wondered if he sensed that I wasn't bringing the topic up for purely academic reasons. If you look from a different angle, he said, then surely the person who caused this anger in you will have a lot of other positive aspects, positive qualities. If you look carefully, you will also find that the act which has made you angry has also given you certain opportunities, 
something which otherwise would not have been possible, even from your point of view. So with effort you'll be able to see many different angles to a single event. This will help. And then Cutler posits the idea that what if you can't find any positive angles of a person or event? Here I think we would be dealing with a situation where you might need to make some effort. Spend some time seriously searching for a different perspective on the situation, not just in a superficial way, but in a very pointed and direct way. You need to use all your powers of reasoning and look at the situation as objectively as possible. For instance, you might reflect on the fact that when you are really angry at someone, you tend to perceive them as having 100% negative qualities, just as when you are strongly attracted to someone, the tendency is to see them as having 100% positive qualities. But this perception does not correspond with reality. If your friend, who you view as so wonderful, were to purposely harm you in some way, suddenly you would become acutely aware that they aren't composed of 100% good qualities. Similarly, if your enemy, the one you hate, were to sincerely beg your forgiveness and continue to show you kindness, it's unlikely that you would continue to perceive them as 100% bad. So even though when you're angry at someone you might feel that the person has no positive qualities, the reality is that nobody is 100% bad. They must have some good qualities if you search hard enough. Now we're moving on to discovering new perspectives. And there's quite an interesting story here that Howard Cutler gives. He was on a plane. He'd booked the flight and he'd asked for an aisle seat. And he'd been mistakenly assigned a centre seat. Sandwiched between a man of generous proportions who had the annoying habit of draping his thick forearm over my side of the armrest and a middle-aged woman who I took an immediate dislike to because I decided she had usurped my aisle seat. There's a good example. I mean, he doesn't know anything about this woman, but because she represents the seat that he wanted, then uh, he reacts negatively to her. Realising that I was reacting so strongly to a woman that I didn't even know, I decided that it must be transference. She must subconsciously remind me of someone from my childhood, the old unresolved feelings of hate towards my mother or something. I racked my brain but couldn't come up with a likely candidate. She just didn't remind me of anyone from my past. So he decided to analyse the situation, analyse this woman and see what his real feelings were. So he said, uh, Sulking, I glared at one of her hands that was furtively encroaching on my armrest. I hated everything about this woman. I was staring absently at her thumbnail when it occurred to me. Do I hate that thumbnail? Not really. It's just an ordinary thumbnail. Unremarkable. Next I glanced at her eye and asked myself, Do I really hate that eye? Yes, I did. Of course, for no good reason, which is the purest form of hate. I focused in closer. Do I hate that pupil? No. Do I hate that cornea, that iris, or that sclera? No. So do I really hate that eye? I had to admit that I didn't. I moved on to a knuckle, a finger, a jaw, an elbow. So you get the idea. So he's just zeroing in and thinking, do I hate the uh, separate aspects of this woman? And of course the answer is no. As I was feeling this, she suddenly turned to me and started a conversation. I don't remember what we talked about. It was small talk mostly. But by the end of the flight, my anger and annoyance had been diffused. Granted, she wasn't my new best friend, but also she was no longer the evil usurper of my aisle seat. Just another human being like me, moving through life as best she could. Bob Dylan in uh, Chronicles, which is the first volume of his memoir. And where's volume two, Bob? We've been waiting 20 years. He says, uh, he quotes one of his relatives, I think, as saying that everyone suffers. Everyone is struggling through life. So try not to judge, try not to be harsh. And obviously in this case of this Howard Cutler story, it was really that the woman, I don't think she represented something in his childhood. I think she just represented the loss of his aisle seat. But when he looked closer, he found that there was nothing to hate. And as I was saying earlier, I think we do, people pick up on our vibes, so to speak. Maybe the woman picked up on um, the fact that he was considering that he didn't hate her and then she engaged him in conversation. Okay, now the next section is called uh, A Supple Mind. The ability to shift perspective, the capacity to view one's problems from different angles, is nurtured by a supple quality of mind. The ultimate benefit of a supple mind is that it allows us to embrace all of life, to be fully alive and human. So he describes uh, the Dalai Lama's suppleness and then says, this is Cutler, every one of us can develop this same suppleness of mind. It comes about, at least in part, directly through our efforts to stretch our perspective and deliberately try on new viewpoints. The end result is a simultaneous awareness of the big picture as well as our individual circumstances. This dual outlook, a concurrent view of the big world and our own little world, can act as a kind of triage, 
helping us separate what is important in life from what isn't. You'll all be familiar with the phrase, you know, see the bigger picture. But it's interesting to compare the bigger picture with our individual circumstances. Now, there's a section here with the Dalai Lama talking. Now, for instance, at the talk at the university the other evening, I spoke about the need to reduce anger and hatred through the cultivation of patience and tolerance. Minimizing hatred is like internal disarmament. But as I also mentioned in that talk, that internal disarmament must go with external disarmament. That, I think, is very, very important. Fortunately, after the Soviet empire collapsed, at least for the time being, there is no more threat of nuclear holocaust. So I think this is a very good time, a very good start. We should not miss this opportunity. Now I think we must strengthen the genuine force of peace, real peace, not just mere absence of violence or absence of war. Mere absence of war can be produced by weapons, like the nuclear deterrent, but a mere absence of war is not genuine, lasting world peace. Peace must develop on mutual trust, and since weapons are the greatest obstacle for development of mutual trust, I think the time has now come to figure out how to get rid of these weapons. That is very important. Now, I have to say here, to be honest, I think he's being a bit naive, and uh, as I said earlier, you know, Cutler does challenge the Dalai Lama in this book, which is one of the things I like about it. But, you know, you might want to ask yourself, yes, the Berlin Wall fell. Why didn't we have peace? And immediately, you know, the boogeyman moved from communism to terrorism. And the idea of, you know, everybody just giving away their weapons or stop manufacturing them. I mean, again, this is high-end capitalism. It's a business. I wanted to read that bit, actually, just to challenge it, to be honest. Could we have no more war? Could we have no more weapons? Or is it just a business that necessarily has to continue? Morally, it shouldn't continue, but um, it's a very, very profitable business, of course. Okay, now we get to the importance of flexible thinking. And this is Cutler talking. As I got to know the Dalai Lama, I became amazed at the extent of his flexibility, his capacity to entertain a variety of viewpoints. One would expect that his unique role as probably the world's most recognised Buddhist might put him in the position of being a sort of defender of the faith. With this in mind, I asked him... Do you ever find yourself being too rigid in your viewpoint, too narrow in your thinking? Hmm, he pondered for a moment before replying decisively. No, I don't think so. In fact, it's just the opposite. Sometimes I'm so flexible that I'm accused of having no consistent policy. He broke into a robust laugh. Someone will come to me and present a certain idea, and I'll see the reason in what they're saying and agree, telling them, Oh, that's great. But then the next person comes along with the opposite viewpoint, and I'll see the reason in what they are saying as well and agree with them also. Sometimes I'm criticised for this and have to be reminded we're committed to this course of action, so for the time being, let's just keep to this side. And then Cutler talks about the fact that although the Dalai Lama, as he himself said, might veer between different viewpoints, or not really veer, but accept different viewpoints, Cutler says the Dalai Lama clearly has a set of basic beliefs that act as a substrate for all his actions, a belief in the underlying goodness of all human beings, a belief in the value of compassion, a policy of kindness, a sense of his commonality with all living creatures. So that's something we mentioned earlier, you know, these basic values. If those values remain consistent, then your actions should be consistent and you'll probably be happier. And then we move on to finding balance. This is the Dalai Lama. The practice of Dharma, real spiritual practice, is in some sense like a voltage stabilizer. The function of the stabilizer is to prevent irregular power surges and instead give you a stable and constant source of power. And then Cutler responds, You stress the importance of avoiding extremes, but isn't going to extremes what provides the excitement and zest in life? By avoiding all extremes in life, always choosing the middle way, doesn't that just lead to a bland, colourless existence? Shaking his head, he answered, I think you need to understand the source or basis of extreme behaviour. Take, for example, the pursuit of material goods, shelter, furniture, clothing and so on. On one hand, poverty can be seen as a sort of extreme, and we have every right to strive to overcome this and assure our physical comfort. On the other hand, too much luxury, pursuing excessive wealth, is another extreme. Our ultimate aim in seeking more wealth is a sense of satisfaction, of happiness. But the very basis of seeking more is a feeling of not having enough, a feeling of discontentment. That feeling of discontentment, of wanting more and more and more, doesn't arise from the inherent desirability of the objects we are seeking, but rather from our own mental state. So I think that our tendency to go to extremes is often fueled by an underlying feeling of discontentment. And of course there may be other factors that lead to extremes. But I think it's important to recognise that while going to extremes may seem appealing or exciting on the surface, it can in fact be harmful. So, you know, me personally, 
I don't believe that you have to be a Buddhist monk and have total control over all your actions. You know, I think we all have the right to go a bit crazy. And if you think about things like alcohol, you know, obviously objectively, it's not really worth it to go out and have a lot of drinks and get drunk and then wake up with a horrible hangover and wondering what you did the previous night. But then I would argue sometimes you need to loosen up, you know, and go a bit mad and do things which are not practical and objectively good things. At the same time, I think this is kind of an age thing. You do learn to temper that. But without torturing yourself, it happens naturally. So I think Cutler's right in the sense that perhaps we are conditioned. If you are not a Buddhist monk, you're probably conditioned to want to alter your senses and uh, in whatever way and go a bit mad, as I said. I don't think there's anything wrong with that every now and again. The next chapter is Finding Meaning in Pain and Suffering. And there's a reference here to Viktor Frankl, who's a Jewish psychiatrist who was imprisoned by the Nazis in World War II. And I can't recommend enough the book Man's Search for Meaning. Again, it's not a depressing book. He does talk about what happened. I think he was in Auschwitz. He was in one of the concentration camps. But it's really, it's a book of hope. And it's um, thought to do with the, the importance of meaning. And in fact, Frankl said, closely observing who survived and who didn't from the death camps, he determined that survival wasn't based on youth or physical strength, but rather the strength derived from purpose and discovering meaning in one's life and experience. Finding meaning in suffering is a powerful method of helping us cope, even during the most trying times in our lives. But finding meaning in our suffering is not an easy task. Suffering often seems to occur at random, senselessly and indiscriminately, with no meaning at all, let alone a purposeful or positive meaning. While we're in the midst of our pain and suffering, all our energy is focused on getting away from it. That's an interesting point, isn't it? Again, it's this avoidance of suffering. Now, obviously, if this suffering is very extreme, it's very natural to want to move away from it. If it's low-level suffering, you know, it might be an idea, as I said earlier, to embrace it, both in the sense of seeing it as possibly a positive thing that's going to help you learn something very important, or even dare I say, to enjoy it. That's not actually my idea. I read that before, the idea that you can actually enjoy it. Now, of course, let me make it very clear, I'm not talking about being in a death camp in World War II. I'm not talking about enjoying that, but it's amazing, actually, that this is coming from Frankel, as I said, not me, that, in fact, there were positives to be found from that in terms of observing the human spirit in yourself and others. That's a very extreme example, of course, but most of us are not going to be going through that. I'm sure the majority of people that are listening to this are not going to so our little bits of suffering could actually be doing us a lot of good this is another example of applying the ideas that are in buddhism to the normal life to the the heathen no the infidel no <laughs> what's the word to the uh, non-religious heathen just saying that as a joke while a person's religious tradition may offer valuable assistance in finding meaning even those who do not subscribe to a religious worldview may find meaning and value behind their suffering upon careful reflection. Despite the universal unpleasantness, there is little doubt that our suffering can test, strengthen and deepen the experience of life. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, What does not destroy me makes me stronger. And while it is natural to recoil from suffering, suffering can also challenge us and at times even bring out the best in us. In The Third Man, author Graham Greene observes, in Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love, 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did they produce? The Cuckoo Clock. Now, The Third Man is one of my favourite films, by the way, and I believe that Orson Welles may well have written that little speech. Again, it's, it's not an argument for uh, terror and bloodshed, but you will find as well that... Um, a lot of creativity comes out of suffering. And I don't believe you should suffer deliberately to get the creativity. You know, you shouldn't just break up with people so you can write songs about it. But once it's happened and you accept that it's happened, then you may as well get something out of it. Now, there's another anecdote here. Robert was the CEO of a very successful corporation. Several years ago, he suffered a serious financial setback, which triggered a severe immobilizing depression. We met one day during the depths of his depression. I'd always known Robert to be the model of confidence and enthusiasm, and I was alarmed to see him looking so despondent. With intense anguish in his voice, Robert reported, This is the worst I've ever felt in my life. I just can't seem to shake it. 
I didn't know that it was even possible to feel so overwhelmed and hopeless and out of control. After discussing his difficulties for a while, I referred him to a colleague for treatment of his depression. This is Cutler, obviously, talking here. Several weeks later, I ran into Robert's wife, Karen, and asked her how he was doing. He's doing much better, thanks. A psychiatrist you recommended prescribed an antidepressant medication, which is helping a lot. Of course, it's still going to take a while for us to work through the problems with the business, but he's feeling much better now, and we're going to be all right. Karen hesitated a moment, then confided, You know, I hated to see him go through that depression, but in a way, I think it has been a blessing. One night, during a fit of depression, he began crying uncontrollably. He couldn't stop. I ended up just holding him in my arms for hours while he wept until he finally fell asleep. In 23 years of marriage, that's the first time something like that has happened. And to be honest, I've never felt so close to him in my life. And she even talks about really a permanent change that happened from that. So uh, again, it wasn't nice to go through it, but um, something came out of it. Unfortunately, it's become a bit of a cliche, hasn't it? You know, take a positive out of a negative. And I think, again, the self-help industry, I think is somewhat to blame for that because it presents it in such a cut and dried way. So I think um, this book, for example, you know, it's not the longest book in the world, but it's not instant cure-alls, as I said earlier. Now we move on to dealing with physical pain. And here's a very interesting idea. I haven't read this book, but uh, have a listen to this. In his book, Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants, Dr. Paul Brand explores the purpose and value of physical pain. Dr. Brand, a world-renowned hand surgeon and leprosy specialist, spent his early years in India, where, as a son of missionaries, he was surrounded by people living under conditions of extreme hardship and suffering. Noticing that physical pain seemed to be expected and tolerated much more than in the West, Dr. Brand became interested in the pain system in the human body. Eventually, he began working with leprosy patients in India and made a remarkable discovery. He found that the ravages of leprosy and the horrible disfigurements were not due to the disease organism directly causing the rotting of the flesh, but rather it was because the disease caused loss of pain sensation in the limbs. Without the protection of pain, the leprosy patients lacked the system to warn them of tissue damage. Thus, Dr. Brand observed patients walking or running on limbs with broken skin or even exposed bones. This caused continuous deterioration. Without pain, sometimes they would even stick their hands in a fire to retrieve something. He noticed an utter nonchalance towards self-destruction. In his book, Dr. Brand recounted story after story of the devastating effects of living without pain sensation, of the repetitive injuries, of cases of rats gnawing off fingers and toes, while the patient slept peacefully. After a lifetime of working with patients suffering from pain and those suffering from lack of pain, Dr. Brand gradually came to view pain not as a universal enemy as seen in the West, but as a remarkable, elegant and sophisticated biological system that warns us of damage to our body and thus protects us. So really what we're talking about there is the physical manifestation of something that in the previous section we were talking about in a mental, psychological sense, pain and suffering. So he's talking about how physical pain can alert you and it's the same psychologically as well okay continuing with this many researchers have examined the role of the mind in the perception of pain pavlov even trained dogs to overcome the pain instinct by associating an electrical shock with a food reward researcher ronald melzak took pavlov's experiments a step further he raised scottish terrier pups in a padded environment in which they couldn't encounter the normal knocks and scrapes of growing up these dogs failed to learn basic responses to pain. They failed to react, for instance, when their paws were pricked with a pin, as opposed to their litter mates who squealed with pain when pricked. On the basis of experiments such as these, he concluded that much of what we call pain, including the unpleasant emotional response, was learned rather than instinctive. Other experiments with human beings involving hypnosis and placebos have also demonstrated that in many cases the higher brain functions can overrule the pain signals from the lower stages on the pain pathway. This indicates how the mind can often determine how we perceive pain and helps explain the interesting findings of investigators such as Dr. Richard Sternbach and Bernard Tursky at Harvard Medical School who noted that there were significant differences among different ethnic groups in their ability to perceive and withstand pain. I won't go into all the details there but... Um, I'm sure there's different relationships that cultures have to pain and that could be to do with religion or it could be just to do with the levels of hardship, relative levels of hardship that they encounter. So yes, very interesting. Again, you know, ancient wisdom, it's all in the mind, they say. And also the idea that the body and mind are connected, you would be amazed 
how recent that is in uh, Western thinking, whereas, you know, it's been believed for thousands of years, you know, it goes back to the Greek philosophers. Okay, the last part in terms of suffering, we have a practice called Tonglen, which the, the Dalai Lama practices himself, which is to do with giving and receiving. And uh, there's a visualization in the book. This is the Dalai Lama talking. So focus your attention on the needy and desperate people. Direct all your positive energy to them. Mentally give them your successes, your resources, your collection of virtues. And after you've done that, visualize taking upon yourself their suffering, their problems, and all their negativities. For instance, you can visualize an innocent starving child from Somalia and feel how you would respond naturally towards that sight. In this instance, when you experience a deep feeling of empathy towards the suffering of that individual, it isn't based on considerations like he's my relative or she's my friend. You don't even know that person. But the fact that the other person is a human being and you yourself are a human being allows your natural capacity for empathy to emerge and enable you to reach out. So you can visualize something like that and think this child has no capacity of his or her own to be able to relieve him or herself from his or her present state of difficulty or hardship. Then mentally take upon yourself all the suffering of poverty, starvation and the feeling of deprivation and mentally give your facilities, wealth and success to this child. Through practicing this kind of giving and receiving visualization, you can train your mind. And now we get to overcoming obstacles and the process of change. So this is the Dalai Lama talking. In discussing an approach to bringing about positive changes within oneself, learning is only the first step. There are other factors as well. Conviction, determination, action and effort. So the next step is developing conviction. Learning and education are important because they help one develop conviction of the need to change and help increase one's commitment. This conviction to change then develops into determination. Next one transforms determination into action. The strong determination to change enables one to make a sustained effort to implement the actual changes. This final factor of effort is critical. So just to reiterate, he talks about learning and education, and then he says, beyond that, conviction, determination, action, and effort. And then he continues, no matter what behavior you're seeking to change, no matter what particular goal or action you're directing your effort towards, you need to start by developing a strong willingness or wish to do it. You need to generate great enthusiasm. And here, a sense of urgency is a key factor. This sense of urgency is a powerful factor in helping you overcome problems. For example, knowledge about the serious effects of AIDS has created a sense of urgency that has put a check on a lot of people's sexual behaviour. I think that often, once you obtain the proper information, that sense of seriousness and commitment will come. This sense of urgency can give us tremendous energy. For instance, in a political movement, if there is a sense of desperation, there can be a tremendous sense of urgency, so much that the people may even forget that they are hungry and there is no feeling of tiredness or exhaustion in pursuit of their objectives which again is very interesting because that's the mind overriding the normal physical mechanisms of hunger in this case. So uh, again, it's very detailed in the book and uh, we're already many hours down the track here. So what I'm going to say is uh, if you start with the learning and education, it seems that the other steps might follow quite seamlessly, but it's still a good idea to keep all the steps in mind. Okay, Dalai Lama continues, For a Buddhist practitioner, there are various techniques used to generate enthusiasm. In order to generate a sense of confidence and enthusiasm, we find in the Buddha's text a discussion of the preciousness of human existence. We talk about how much potential lies within our body, how meaningful it can be, the good purposes it can be used for, the benefits and advantages of having a human form, and so on. And these discussions are there to instill a sense of confidence and courage and to induce a sense of commitment to use our human body in a positive way. Then, in order to generate a sense of urgency to engage in spiritual practices, the practitioner is reminded of our impermanence, of death. When we talk about impermanence in this context, we are talking in very conventional terms, not about the more subtle aspects of the concept of impermanence. In other words, we are reminded that one day we will no longer be here, that sort of understanding, that awareness of impermanence is encouraged, so that when it is coupled with our appreciation of the enormous potential of our human existence, it will give us a sense of urgency that I must use every precious moment. And that's something we mentioned earlier, isn't it? Try to live every second of each day. Remembering, of course, to relax. Yeah, that doesn't mean you have to be manically involved in activity. That's one of the things <laughs> I suffer with, a kind of addiction to productivity and 
Very good piece of wisdom. Sometimes the most productive thing you can do is relax because you're recharging the batteries and it's a very good use of your time. And Cutler says, the Dalai Lama's words rang true, yet as a psychiatrist I was acutely aware of how strongly entrenched some negative behaviours and ways of thinking could become, how difficult it was for some people to change. Assuming that there were complex psychodynamic factors at play, I'd spent countless hours examining and dissecting patients' resistance to change. Turning this over in my mind, I asked, people often want to make positive changes in their lives, engage in healthier behaviours and so on, but sometimes there just seem to be a sort of inertia or resistance. How would you explain how that occurs? That's quite easy, the Dalai Lama began casually. Easy? It's because we simply become habituated or accustomed to doing things in certain ways, and then we become sort of spoiled, doing only the things that we like to do that we are used to doing. So Cutler says, but how can we overcome that? By using habituation to our advantage. Through constant familiarity, we can definitely establish new behaviour patterns. Here's an example. In Dharamasala, I usually wake up and start the day at 3.30, although here in Arizona these days I wake up at 4.30, I get one more hour's sleep, he laughed. At the beginning, you need a little bit of effort to get used to this, but after a few months, it becomes sort of a set routine and you don't need to make any special effort. So even if you were to go to bed late, you might have a tendency to want a few more minutes sleep, but you still get up at 3.30 without having to give special thought to it, and you can get up and do your daily practices. This is due to the force of habituation. And as I've said many times on this podcast and my other podcast, humans have survived by adapting to new circumstances, by changing. So... What he's really talking about is the building of habits. Some people say it takes three weeks to form a new habit. Obviously, it's going to vary with different people. But um, you just have to put the work in. And then this magical thing happens after a while where it becomes more effort not to do it. Let's say getting up early. Let's say having six and a half or seven hours of sleep instead of eight. Some doctors would tell you you need to have eight hours. I actually find sometimes I function better on seven because if I have eight hours... I perhaps I'm a bit groggy in the morning, a bit drowsy, because I've been too rested almost. So, you know, most people would say seven to eight hours, but if you decide to have an hour's less sleep and maybe sacrifice a bit of comfort to feel a little bit more dynamic the next day, you'll be amazed how quickly you'll get used to it. All right, now we'll move on to motivation. I mean, it's around the same topic. And this is Cutler talking. Behavioural scientists have extensively researched the mechanisms that initiate, sustain and direct our activities, referring to this field as a study of human motivation. Psychologists have identified three principal types of motives. The first type, primary motives, are drives based on biological needs that must be met for survival. This would include, for example, needs for food, water and air. Another category of motives involves a human being's need for stimulation and information. Investigators hypothesize that this is an innate need required for proper maturation, development and functioning of the nervous system. The final category, called secondary motives, are motives based on learned needs and drives. Many secondary motives are related to acquired needs for success, power, status or achievement. At this level of motivation, one's behavior and drives can be influenced by social forces and shaped by learning. It is at this stage that the theories of modern psychology meet with the Dalai Lama's conception of developing determination and enthusiasm. In the Dalai Lama's system, however, the drive and determination generated are not used only in the pursuit of worldly success, but develop as one gains a clearer understanding of the factors that lead to true happiness and are used in the pursuit of higher goals such as kindness, compassion and spiritual development. Effort is the final factor in bringing about change. The Dalai Lama identifies effort as a necessary factor in establishing new conditioning. The idea that we can change our negative behaviours and thoughts through new conditioning is not only shared by Western psychologists, but is in fact the cornerstone of contemporary behavioural therapy. So there you go. Behavioural therapy, let's say Western again, meets with the Dalai Lama's theories with uh, nice differences. And that, that kind of sums up this book, really. You know, They find some common ground, Cutler and the Dalai Lama, but then they investigate the differences while never saying that one is right and one's wrong. As I said earlier, we can take aspects from different cultures, different ideas, different theories, and uh, wouldn't say create the perfect person. <laughs> That's a bit fanciful, isn't it? But we can all improve. If you'd like to support my work across my three podcasts, 
which are Life and Life Only, Glass Island on John Lennon, and Film Gold, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Anthony Rotuno, where you can make a one-off donation or take out a monthly or yearly subscription, which will give you early access and bonus podcast content. Thanks again for listening.